Good evening, friends of St. Stephen's, anyone else who's cared to join with me in this little devotional as I continue to look at the life of John Stott based on this uh, biography of uh, Timothy Dudley Smith. I was uh, looking uh, at the author, Timothy Dudley Smith, I was reminded that he'd uh, written many hymns, including uh, one of my favourite, Tell Out My Soul, based on the words of the Magnificat. Well, tonight I want to share with you uh, the words of the Magnificat as part of uh, this being part of a devotional. It is evening prayer time. I'm just going to share a few words uh, then uh, about a, a battle that John Stott had in his coming to ordination. I begin with the words of Magnificat. The Song of Mary, as it's put here in our little uh, Australian and Australian prayer book AAPB. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked with favour on his lowly servant. From this day all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and to his children forever. Glory to God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, as in the beginning, so now and forever. Amen. Following that in the prayer book comes the Song of Simeon. Lord, now you let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. My own eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared in the sight of every people, a light to reveal you to the nations and the glory of your people Israel. Glory to God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, as in the beginning, so now and forever. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. O Lord, lighten our darkness, I pray, and in your great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night for the love of your only Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's kind of a coincidental. I hadn't deliberately realised it would happen, but that uh, final uh, reading of Luke 2 is the Song of Simeon, and I had brought up this little biography, uh, which is based on Charles Simeon, just to uh, come in to you. It's by Hanley Moll. Uh, Charles Simeon was a, uh, an Anglican uh, minister preacher in uh, Cambridge in the well, mainly early 1800s. He lived 1759 to 1836, so I guess uh, also late. Uh, 1700s. Uh, he is the minister of Holy Trinity Cambridge, and it was uh, Holy Trinity Church Cambridge, and it was at Holy Trinity uh, in uh, 
Cambridge that uh, John Stott himself uh, went to university. And on the back of this, uh, as I'm about to share something about John Stott's biography, we'll hear this uh, biography has a little comment uh, recommendation by John Stott himself. We urgently need in the pulpits of the world a new generation of Simeons who, like him, will expound scripture with faithfulness, passion and relevance. May this new edition of Handley Moll's famous biography inspire many as it inspired me. Well, I'm not going to dwell further on uh, that particular uh, biography, but I do want to uh, return to John Stott. If you were with me last time, you may recall I had shared how at a young age he was very interested in uh, ornithology, is it? Uh, bird watching. And, uh, but I want to, I've been reading this biography again and uh, been reminded of the conflict that he had in coming to ordination. Uh, and it revolved around the time that he was uh, finishing school just uh, at the uh, end of the 1930s and 1939. And a conflict came because at that particular age, he was uh, with the Second World War uh, breaking out. At that point, uh, there was the almost assumed uh, direction that he would go and be one who would enlist for national service, however that might uh, work out. But uh, Stott himself uh, had uh, become a Christian some years before and indeed uh, been convinced that it was right to be a pacifist. And so Dudley Smith uh, shares that the outbreak of war, 3rd of September 1939, uh, John Stott was almost eight, 18 and a half, coming to his final year, at, uh, he was at school at rugby. Uh, but he'd also done, um, in the process of his schooling, gone to uh, Birmingham where uh, they had what was called, a, he had attested, that is, technically enlisted in the army and committed himself to military service should he, when he should reach the required age. Apparently he wasn't really aware of what was actually taking process at that point. Uh, when he did that, it seems a little unusual how it all came about. Uh, it was all with very little instruction that he was um, prepared. He said he'd been a Christian for about a year and a half and was moving uh, with very little instruction or advice to a position that he would later describe as an instinctive pacifist. Uh, to quote, when the war broke out, I was a very immature Christian. I had now read the Sermon on the Mount for the first time with its commands not to resist evil, but rather to turn the other cheek and to love our enemies. It seemed to me impossible to reconcile these injunctions with war. Nobody introduced me to the just war theory or helped me to balance the biblical arguments. And he refers to someone who also was a pacifist, uh, but didn't actually influence him. He just came to this himself. And uh, this led to quite a controversy. Uh, many years later, uh, when Stott is about 80, he's written this book called The Living Church. And I happen to notice that the appendix uh, of that, he's reflecting 
upon his own life and the priorities he had. And he actually refers to this uh, very briefly and uh, the, the sense of conflict he had in uh, making this decision. Uh, it's got another little bit here where he says, he talks about his, uh, his life <clears throat> and how he responded. He said, I, I had a growing sense of vocation to share with others what nobody till then had shared with me. And so he's going about as a young student, sharing with different people, and he shared with his headmaster. And because he had actually made that commitment before it even attested, he, in his own mind, determined, decided that he was uh, called uh, to uh, the vocation of the ordained ministry. Uh, and it was that very fact that he'd actually shared it with his headmaster that in the long run actually became pretty much the basis for him being exempt from military service uh, because he made clear his intention to be an, or an ordinand, uh, to be someone who was uh, preparing for Anglican ministry. Well, of course, in the early uh, 1940s, uh, <clears throat> that was a controversial decision not to be going into national service. And the controversy was particularly with not merely the authorities, uh, in fact, in the long run, because of what happened with the headmaster and so on, others, the authorities, were in some sense more sympathetic. It was particularly with his parents and in particular with his own father, who, uh, who was a, a medical uh, practitioner, someone who I think had served in World War I himself or uh, in, in the medical role, and then uh, was actually involved over in France at this time, uh, helping out uh, those in field hospitals and so on. And uh, in this uh, chapter, Towards Ordination and Instinctive Pacifist is the title, uh, there are a number of letters and uh, you sense, and, and it, it unfolds this deep uh, tension between father and son, between John Stott and his father about his own decision and uh, the different ways he had to go to the bishop and the letters that went back and forth and the bishop finding out well his father's not very keen so uh, the bishop had to sort of withdraw his support and uh, <coughs> here's, uh, I just share with you a couple of the letters that help uh, bring out some of the the tension. Uh, Easter Day 1940, he's writing from rugby, the school, uh, having received uh, a letter of his father. He wrote, with some trepidation, the heart of the letter is a plea <coughs> that his parents should not stand in his way. And so John Stock wrote, I see the need of the world and it's my very great ambition to serve the world in some way and to meet that need. I feel daily more convinced that it is by ordination that I can best fulfil God's purpose for my life. I'm writing to ask if you will trust me and my judgment sufficiently to 
allow me to have my name put on a list of provisional ordination candidates now. That's just one little section of the paragraph that shows you this, this pleading that he has. Uh, he's at Cambridge, his father's actually supporting him uh, in his degree, his, uh, uh, on, uh, his studies. And initially it's uh, uh, in, in modern languages. They, his father, I think, had hopes that he might end up in the uh, di diplomatic field certainly wasn't really keen anyway on him going into the church, uh, but certainly not at this time where he believed that to go towards ordination at this time when your country needed you uh, was simply just, uh, it almost left him ashamed, probably it wouldn't be too strong to say that his father felt ashamed of him. Uh, the bishop, for example, the Bishop of Coventry, I uh, wrote at one point a kind of pastoral note, note, Dear Stott, I am sorry that you are passing through such a difficult time, but if I were you, I should not try to press your father unduly at the present stage of things, but go forward believing that somehow it work, will work out all right. Yours sincerely, uh, Mervyn Coventry, that is, Bishop of Coventry. Well, a little bit later, sometime later, John Stott writes a long personal letter in which he presents his case and parts of that letter are here and there's one little part I want to share with you before I do. I share how his mother was kind of like the in the sandwich between father and son and was often writing back and uh, for her it was terribly painful. She was the peacemaker in the family and uh, you get a sense of some of that pain when you read this letter, uh, she was uh, writing every few days at this point, dreading what an envelope in her son's handwriting might bring as he proved death to all appeals. She herself was appealing, please just, just go into national service, that's the right way. I don't even have to go into the army you can serve in, in some different kind of way. Uh, so she writes, your letter arrived by the afternoon post on Saturday. It lay on the dining room table for a couple of hours before I could pull myself together. Then when I opened it and started reading, it felt as though my inside dropped down to my shoes. There is no doubt and no opposition from us for the choice of your calling, dear Jonathan, but we cannot see or understand that you should feel that you can calmly and quietly continue your studies to this end, even though the calling is a sacred one, as though as though peace was ruling the world and that the greatest and most crucial and important war for civilization was not convulsing the world. Daddy definitely feels he should not pay for your education at Cambridge after this year. He told me so, as though there was no war on. Uh, that is, pay for your education as though there were no war on. Well, you can see how uh, painful it must have been uh, for them all, and certainly the mother is experiencing that pain. But I want to close uh, by just sharing some of the reasons that uh, John Stock gave in his letter. Uh, he had clearly thought it through and he had a deep conviction and he, in the long run, believed it was the call of the Lord 
And so he said, my reason is as follows. Firstly, obedience to my call. Whatever you may think of it, I have had a definite and irresistible call from God to serve him in the church. During the last three years, I have become increasingly conscious of this call and my now, life now could be summed up in the words, separated unto the gospel of God. There is no higher service. I ask no other. He goes on. Mummy said recently in one of her letters, at present, other things come first. This is to me where her argument breaks down. In my life, other things do not and cannot come first. I am not at liberty to put other things first, for I am separated unto the gospel of God. As for the family's idea that a matter of two or three years cannot make all that difference, uh, he goes on to say, Do you think that two or three years during which I reject my most sacred calling really makes no difference? It's largely a matter of principle. Were I to do any service, good or bad, which is not directed toward the one object of preaching the gospel in days to come, I should be laying aside the authority of God. You can certainly see how strongly he is standing. How he, it's not merely a matter of feeling. This is a deep conviction he has. He goes on second, service to my country. This may sound paradoxical at first, but let me explain. Mummy said in another letter, give prior claim to service to my country. Do you think then that I would not be serving my country by going on, by going on with my cause for ordination? The government, government have said the contrary, and it seems self-evident to me that I should be serving my country for the following reason. And he gives, uh, the first one is post-war reconstruction. We hear a lot about this now, nowadays, and surely you don't deny its importance. You would all agree that in the end, it is spiritual values, I purposely use a vague expression, which matter. If medicos are exempt for their services in dealing with disease after the war, how much more should ordinands for their services in dealing with the diseases of the spirit? Churchill himself said the other day that after the war, we should need new hearts to bring peace to a distraught war, world, or words to that effect. And then he quotes from the Times, on the 16th of January, 1941. A recent letter reaffirmed the truth that no scheme of national reconstruction can be adequate which does not include such changes in our system of national education as will make it definitely Christian in purpose. Who is to effect this? Asks John Stott. If it isn't men trained for the purpose. And he quotes uh, someone who said in December, after final victory will come the real struggle to build up a world worthy of the principles we are fighting for, freedom and truth and peace and goodwill. And Stock closes this reason saying, who is to set forth these principles if it isn't men who have clung to them and are trained and willing to preach them, whatever the cost. Well, there he is. Uh, at, at, he hasn't even reached age 20, but you can see how solidly uh, his foundation, uh, in set apart for the gospel of God, uh, he is determined uh, that is the direction for his life 
that the Lord has called him to. And indeed, what a testimony as he would go on uh, to serve and have such influence for, I guess, seven decades from there and even beyond that, as we talk about him now, uh, almost 80 years since that time, or beyond 80 years. He goes on to give other reasons, uh, to one being the country is best served if its citizens are obeying God. The country's best place is in the centre of God's will, and it will not attain that place unless its individual citizens are fulfilling God's will in their own lives. I've already told you how this affects me. He really uh, recognised this was a point that he had to stand on. And thirdly, he says, you are fighting a physical war against flesh and blood in order that men may have peace with man, man may have peace with man. I am fighting a spiritual war against principalities and powers in order that man may have peace with God. If man is in a state of peace with God, it follows inevitably and at once that he is in a state of peace with his fellow men because the fruit of the Spirit is love. But even if men were in a state of peace with each other, it would not necessarily follow that they would be in a state of peace with God, except in so as far as men cannot live in peace with each other unless they are right with God, which is, is of course, the fundamental cause of the chaos in Europe today. I have been called to the one war, you know, no doubt to the other. Both are service to our country. I respect you for your service. Will you respect me for mine? Timothy Dudley Smith goes on to speak further about it and uh, what happened. Uh, there was a deep rift between father and son. There's a point, I think. Uh, well, certainly his father did support him uh, and allow him to remain at college, indeed go into ordination, uh, to be an ordination candidate. But the rift was such that there was a point where for almost two years uh, he could not uh, look him in the face and there was this rift, a rift which uh, reconciled after, uh, at a later time, particularly after the war and as John Stott began his ministry. But nonetheless, uh, it never, they never had that return to, if you like, the, the very happy days of... Uh, the family life that John Stott enjoyed as a young boy uh, in his family. With his father, there was always that tension which had arisen. But the Lord was the one who called him. John Stott was obedient. And is the Lord who summons us in the gospel. And I close with these words of Luke chapter 11, which sprang to mind as I thought about this uh, particular incident. Uh, and the Lord speaking about the calling in, I found my passage, it was Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 53. Where the Lord Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptised with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, 
daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Words which John Stott indeed had to live out to the full as he committed himself to the service of God, the service of the gospel during the time of the Second World War and went for ordination in the Anglican Church. And thanks be to God that he did, for he has borne powerful testimony to the Lord and been used mightily that others indeed might know the secure and sure hope, the hope that has been won by our Saviour Christ, who brings peace, peace between us and God, a peace which flows out between man and man. Let us pray. I close with the words of the Collect for Peace. <clears throat> Eternal God, from whom all holy desires, all good purposes, and all just works proceed, give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and that free from the fear of our enemies, we may pass our time in trust and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ our Saviour. Amen. Thank you for joining with me.